Ah, yes, the, uh, the Christmas tree. Uh, finding it, lighting it, decorating it, uh, as you know, isn't just an American cultural phenomenon or something the Griswolds do. Um, it's a holiday tradition practiced all over the world this time of year. And, you know, what would, what would Christmas be without a tree, right? And uh, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, but it's fascinating to me how this whole tree thing has become such a big deal for so many people around the world. I was, I was just reading this week how Christmas tree sales, this year alone, 2013, is going to pump $3.4 billion into our national economy. Uh, $3.4 billion. That's a lot of money. According to the NCTA, the National Christmas Tree Association, and yes, there is a group uh, like that, uh, according to the NCTA, 35 to 40 million real trees will be purchased this year in the U.S. alone. Now, if you're environmentally minded and um, concerned about depletion, don't be, uh, because for every tree harvested, two to three seedlings get planted in the spring to replenish the crop. Uh, tris- Christmas tree growers are smart. They're planning for the future because they know there is big money to be made. Uh, I also learned this, this week as I was reading about trees that Christmas trees are edible. Do you guys know that? According to the National Christmas Tree Eaters Association. Um, okay, so that's not really a group, but... <laughs> Uh, according to expert nutritionists, uh, the parts of pine trees, uh, spruce trees, fir trees are edible. For example, the, the needles are loaded with, ve- with vitamin C. Uh, pine cones are a really good source of nourish- nourishment. Uh, but obviously, eating a Christmas tree isn't a particularly smart idea, especially if yours isn't a real one. And uh, there's a good chance it is not. Uh, last year, 2012, 10.9 million households bought artificial trees. So, I mean, how many of you guys have artificial trees? How, oh, wow, wow. how many of you have real trees? How many of you actually tried to eat one of those? Anybody, anybody in the room? We had a few people in the first service. Really weird. Um, look, the Christmas tree is a big deal for a lot of people. It even gets its own song, right? Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, thy leaves are so unchanging. Not only green when summer's here, but in the coolest time of year, oh, Christmas tree, Much pleasure do you bring me. For every year the Christmas tree brings to us all both joy and glee, each shining light, each silver bell. No one alive spreads cheer so well. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, you'll never be unchanging. It's like a love song to a spruce. You know, it's kind of of weird, but um, it's true. It It gets its own song. So with all this captivating information now crammed into your brain, um, do you wonder where it all comes from? You ever wonder about that, where this whole tree idea originated? I mean, did a couple people stand around some day, some you know, holiday and say, hey, what do you want to do this Christmas? I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, how about this? Let's go cut down a tree, drag the sticky, filthy thing indoors, prop it in the living room, wrap our electrical cord around it, and plug it in and see what happens. You know, is that, is that, is that, where, do we, is that where we got the tradition? Well, there's some, bait, some debate on where it actually originated, but a majority of scholars and historians believe that the first Christmas tree can be traced back Uh, to Western Germany uh, during the Middle Ages, somewhere between the 5th and 15th century, uh, because, you know, before the printing press was invented in 1447, most people couldn't read. And so they were often taught about the stories of Scripture and the truth of Scripture by these traveling religious theater groups. 
uh, that would go around and they would, they would present plays. And one of the most popular productions was known as the Paradise Play, performed in churches and town squares all over Europe uh, during the Advent season. And the play told the story of humanity from creation in the garden to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And the only prop that was used during the play was a tree decorated with, uh, with apples representing life in paradise. And so this, this tree of life became a symbol of the play. But later on, as books became more available and illiteracy decreased, so did the need for the play. And as it faded into obscurity, people just started putting their own trees in their own homes during Advent to symbolize life and, and to symbolize and represent the birth of Jesus. Now, the whole lighting thing uh, goes back, according to some, to the 16th century to this guy, uh, the well-known German theologian and uh, reformer Martin Luther, who apparently was walking through a forest of evergreens one night when he looked up and he saw all, this, all the twinkling stars shining down through the branches. It was just so beautiful. And he went back home and had a really hard time describing to his family what he saw, so he showed them by placing candles on their tree. Um, Luther was a brilliant theologian, but not particularly a bright decorating person in terms of safety. So uh, apparently that's where the lighting thing started, according to some. Electric lights, uh, by the way, came on uh, Christmas 1882. And it was this guy here. He was an assistant to Thomas Edison. He came up with the idea. So basically, I mean, in an abbreviated you know, explanation, that's how, that's how we got the Christmas tree. It started as a symbol of life. Uh, and, and it marked the apex of redemptive history, the birth of Jesus, reminding people uh, uh, of, of, the, of, of Advent, you know, of the arrival of the Christ, uh, Savior of the world. But all of this leaves me wondering uh, if, that's, if that's who we really think of when we see the tree. I mean, maybe it is. I mean, maybe, maybe the star that a lot of people put on the top of their trees uh, reminds you of the Star of Bethlehem, you know, that first century cosmic anomaly that uh, led ancient astronomers to Jesus who came and said, you know, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Or maybe the lights on the tree remind you of Jesus' words when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. Maybe gifts under the tree remind you of God, the, gift, the greatest gift giver, and it makes you thankful for the gift of life that we have in Jesus. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the more and more I think about it, the more I realize that the tree is indeed meant to help us focus on Jesus. And, and hopefully, hopefully it does, and hopefully it helps us focus not only on his birth, because, I mean, that was just the beginning, right? I mean, during the holidays, we should be reminded of, of, of a number of other important things about Jesus, like how, how Jesus grew up to be powerful. You know, powerful, not in the sense that he was a, a, a wealthy aristocrat posing as a poor carpenter's kid, uh, but powerful and, you know, and influential because of, because of his words. I mean, don't forget, at a very, very young age, Jesus was already interacting with the religious experts and intellectuals of his time. Uh, Luke reports how one day his parents lost track of him in Jerusalem and, and they found him in the temple courts and were told that he was sitting among the teachers, he was listening and asking questions, and everyone there who heard him, was, they were amazed at his, his understanding and his answers. And from that point on, you know, throughout his entire life, Jesus was all about teaching, which is why some people called him, you know, teacher, rabbi, master. It was a, it was a title of respect. 
He spoke in the temple in Jerusalem. He spoke in synagogues all around the region. He spoke in the city streets. He spoke in the country. And wherever and whenever Jesus spoke, people tended to react the same way. They said, you know, they were just amazed, you know, at, at his knowledge and the depth of his teaching. And down through the centuries, right up until this very moment, no one can or will say with, with intellectual honesty, they, 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 you know, they just won't deny the profound nature of, of Jesus' teaching and words. Many of his words today are readily quoted, you know, by Christians and non-Christians alike. It's like, it's a universally, you know, held opinion that Jesus was a brilliant guy, a great teacher whose words were and still remain powerful and, and influential but let's not forget that Jesus was also powerful in his works. I mean, he did, he did things no other human being could do. Amazing things, miracles in the truest sense. Things witnessed by hundreds of men and women who would say, you know, where did he get such power? In one instance, you know, Jesus was in a boat with the disciples and this fierce storm blows up on the Sea of Galilee and, and, and threatens to sink the boat that they're in. And, and according to Matthew, Jesus calmed the storm with a, with a simple command. In another instance, on the shoreline, Jesus fed over 5,000 men, women, and children with five loaves of bread and a couple sardines, and he still had leftovers. Uh, he did a lot of things like that. But here's the deal. Jesus wasn't interested in doing those kind of things simply to impress people. In fact, there were instances, according to Matthew and according to Luke, when Jesus absolutely refused to perform miracles. Why? Because in those, in those cases, people were demanding it. They were demanding a sign. It's like they were looking to be wowed. And Jesus, you know, he wasn't some kind of circus sideshow act. His intention was to demonstrate the power of God, authenticate his divinity, and his message of grace. It wasn't about just entertaining people. But one thing's for sure, you know, when Jesus chose to do the miraculous, it impacted those who witnessed it or experienced it. At a wedding in Cana, where Jesus performed his first miracle, if you remember, he turned water into fine wine. Not only were the hosts of the wedding pretty thrilled about that. Not only were their guests happy, but we're told Jesus' friends put their faith in him. And then after the wedding, Jesus went on to Jerusalem. We're told that many people saw the miracles he was performing there and believed in his name. Over time, uh, Jesus became known for instantly healing all kinds of illnesses, you know, leprosy, paralysis, blindness, deafness. He could even bring his power to bear at a great distance. You know, he, he once healed a Roman officer's servant Without, without ever meeting the guy. Uh, Jesus confronted uh, death itself. The Apostle John records the raising of, of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the grave days after he was buried. And keep in mind, the Gospel accounts record that, that many of the people who, who experienced and witnessed these things put their faith in him. And I understand why, right? I mean, Jesus lived a powerful life but not only in terms of teaching, not only in terms of miracles, but in terms of being undeniably credible. He practiced what he preached, if you will. His life was an open book. He really loved his neighbor. He served others. He reached out to cultural outcasts, to the marginalized, the kind of men and women most people today are tempted to ignore. He, he hung out with the irreligious, and was criticized for it oftentimes by his enemies who said they called him a friend of sinners. And yet even his enemies readily acknowledged his honesty and consistency. And they said, they said to him, we know you're a man of integrity. And there's no, there's no questioning. And I mean, Jesus' words, his works, 
and his overall life was very powerful. Why? Well, it's because Jesus claimed uniqueness. Right? He claimed to be different from all other human beings. And understand, Jesus didn't view himself as just one among you know, many spiritual practitioners. He, he claimed to be deity in the most exclusive, uh, unique, and absolute sense. God incarnate in the flesh with us. I mean, that's a pretty wild and outrageous claim, which is why it's intellectually inconsistent to suggest that Jesus was a, a, a good and powerful, profound teacher and yet ref- refused to believe he wasn't as who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. I mean, for, forget, forget good, forget profound, forget powerful. Not even a mediocre, shallow, or weak teacher would say those kind of things because they're out there. So was, you know, was Jesus just deluded? Was he, a, was he a fraud? And yet what's interesting is no one ever suggests that. No one suggests that. And frankly, it just seems more logical to me. To, it's a more logical option to admit that and, and believe that he was and is who he professed to be. Savior of the world. Deity in human form. I mean, just con- consider some of, his, some of his claims for a second. You know, in the Old Testament... God often uses the phrase I am to describe himself to his people. Moses said, who shall I tell, uh, who shall I, what name shall I give you? Who shall I tell you, you know, the people who's sending me? And God said to Moses, tell him I am is sending you. And the phrase uh, in the Hebrew emphasizes the unique, the eternal, the self-existing, all-powerful, transcendent, and sovereign nature of the creator who is to be honored and who's to be worshipped. The I am who I am God. Well, Jesus Use that phrase a lot. He, he said one time, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He says, I am the bread of life. He who partakes of me will live. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. He said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Do you believe that, Jesus asked. Serious question. One time, he said, I and the Father are one. At other times, he'd tell people their sins are forgiven, which really freaked out the religious guys because that was blasphemy. They knew that only God has the right to forgive sins. One time when Jesus was talking to them about, about Abraham, the father of Israel, uh, he was talking about him as if he knew him personally. And uh, the religious guy said, what are you talking about, man? Abraham lived about 2,000 years ago. You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am God, eternal, self-existing, all-powerful. These are unprecedented claims of Jesus. And they drove the religious community into an offended frenzy because they knew what he was saying. That he was God, which is why they wanted to kill him. I mean, seriously, that's an incredible claim for someone to make who's just a, a philosopher or a prophet or a rabbi, you know, a good moral teacher, don't you think? It, it, it really begs the question of what, what do you believe about Jesus? What do we believe? In his classic book, Mere Christianity, late Oxford professor, former atheist turned Christian, C.S. Lewis makes this famous comment. He says, you know, a man who was merely a man and said the things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. What's really amazing to me is, is that the, the, the late Christopher Hitchens, the well-known atheist and author, he agreed with Lewis. He said, he said, I'm bound to say Lewis is right. Absent a direct line to the Almighty, how is it moral to claim a monopoly on access to heaven or to threaten waverers with everlasting fire, let alone condemn fig trees and persuade devils to infest the bodies of pigs? Such a person, if not divine, would be a sorcerer and a fanatic. Fellow atheist Sam Harris, in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, he writes, I want to acknowledge that there are a few things that you, you Christians, and I agree about. We agree that if one of us is right, then the other is wrong. Either Jesus offers humanity the one true path to salvation, or he does not. Here's my, my reiki summary. Atheists and Christians agree on at least one thing. You can't simply call Jesus a moral teacher with any intellectual you know, honesty. Because if you take him seriously, you have to take seriously what he said about himself. You cannot separate the identity of Jesus from the claims of Jesus. I mean, look, a lot of men and women who are religiously minded, you know, especially during the holidays, uh, feel, feel that Jesus was a good teacher, feel that he was a good leader, feel that he was a good prophet, a spiritual guide or whatever. But Jesus hasn't left us that option. You know, a lot of spiritual talk in our, in our culture today revolves around feelings. I feel this, I feel that, I feel the other thing. But Jesus' message revolved around facts, specifically the fact of his deity. Now, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted that the coming Messiah of God, the, the Savior who was, who was coming, would be called Emmanuel. The word means God with us. And Jesus claimed to be him. Deity in the flesh. And he said, no one gets to the Father in heaven except through faith in me. And uh, his enemies recognized what he was saying. His followers believed it. Early church leaders affirmed it. Early church councils defended it. Uh, and for about 2,000 years now, Christians have celebrated it. Now, the Apostle John put it this way when writing the early church. He said, you know, the one who existed from the beginning is the one we have heard, the one we have seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus, the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the word of life, i.e., the true Jesus of Christmas, the Jesus of history, was powerful, authoritative, uniquely divine. But here's something to think about during the Advent season that often we, we kind of miss on, uh, and that is Jesus never told his followers to remember his birth. You realize that? And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just pointing out that Jesus never told us to remember and celebrate his birth. He did, however, tell us to, to remember his death. Why? Because Jesus lived to die. He himself said it. He said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In short, Jesus came for the purpose of paying the penalty for human rebellion and sin, yours and mine. He came to die. You know, once again, 700 years before his birth in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah predicted what would happen to Emmanuel, God with us, the Christ, the Savior. Isaiah said he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes to Christians and he affirms Jesus' fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He writes to the church, he says, He himself, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And with that last phrase, Peter directly quotes Isaiah. And as I was rereading that text this week, what caught my eye again is, is how Peter refers to the tree. He says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. See, there's something we should never ever forget when it comes to the holiday season. Namely, there are essentially you know, two, two trees of Christmas. The, the ones over there you know, that, that we light and decorate that remind us of his birth. And then the one over there that reminds us of his death. The Greek term that Peter uses in this text that we translate tree literally means wood. And it was, uh, it was the term often used in the first century to refer to the stake upon which the Romans brutally crucified people. What was Peter's point? That Jesus' death on the tree, on the cross, fulfilled Isaiah's prediction of Emmanuel, the Christ, Messiah. God with us. If you read through the New Testament gospel accounts, what you'll learn is that Jesus, Jesus never regarded his crucifixion as some kind of accident or you know, mistake. He, uh, he, he acknowledged it was part of God's divine unfolding plan of redemption. In fact, on several occasions, Jesus said that he would go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer and that he would be killed and be raised to life on the third day. In other words, just as Jesus lived to die, he also died to live. You know, after his death, after he was removed from the tree, from the cross, most of his closest friends and members of his inner circle, man, they split, they took off. And the few who had enough guts to hang around or go out in public and who went to his tomb and found it empty, they went back and told all the other disciples the body was gone, this strange guy was hanging around, Mary thinks it's an angel, but he was saying Jesus was alive, Jesus had risen. And even though they were initially skeptical, uh, the rest of the disciples eventually confirmed the truth of the event. And then over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared in physical form to a whole lot of people. I mean, think about it. Think about Peter for a second. Peter, who was one of Jesus' most faithful, uh, passionate, and outspoken disciples, right? During Jesus' trial, denied even knowing him. He denied him three times. After the crucifixion, Peter went into hiding. He was afraid of being arrested. And yet within a few short days, something significant happened that changed Peter forever. And he goes on to proclaim, Jesus has risen. He was beaten for it. He went to jail for preaching it. Ultimately crucified upside down for believing it and being a committed follower of Christ. A Christian. What happened to Peter? What changed him? Or Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was originally a brutal persecutor of early Christians. He would go and he would take their belongings. He would have them put to death. And yet one day he turns from an adversary of Jesus to an advocate. 
He was transformed from a murderer to a missionary. He went from being a vicious interrogator of believers to one of the greatest propagators of, of, of the Christian faith. And uh, he too was eventually killed for his commitment to Jesus, beheaded by Nero in 65 AD. What happened to Paul? What caused the radical change in his life? Well, understand, it's not so much the what as it is the who. Paul explains it this way uh, when writing the, the church. He says, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. You see, it wasn't just Jesus' teaching that changed Paul or Peter or John or the other disciples. That's not what transformed them from being you know, cowardly friends to, to bold and passionate believers who faced martyrdom with little fear or hesitation. I mean, how many sinful, selfish human beings do you know would, would give willingly give their life, sacrifice themselves for something they knew to be a lie? No one would do that. It was the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the truth of God's love, grace, and forgiveness that turned the lives of these men and women upside down, and they in turn shared the reality of this good news with others. And Christianity took off. It spread across communities, across cultures, and across continents. And it changed the course of history forever. Changed it forever. I'm going to invite our band to come back up on stage with me, and as they do, just so you know, today is the second Sunday of the season of Advent, and again, Advent comes from the Latin term Adventus, meaning the arrival of, and uh, this morning we're going to be lighting our second Advent candle, uh, representing the candle of joy, Uh, and uh, as we do that, uh, it's important for us to keep in mind that Jesus, Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus who was born into history went on to be powerful, powerful in his words, in his works, and in the way that he lived his life every single day. He taught with the kind of grace and authority that captivated people's attention. He, um, he loved in the way that no one else did. He claimed to be unique, deity in the flesh, savior of the world. He lived to die and died to live. His death and his resurrection changed the course, not of individual lives, not just individual lives, but history, human history. His grace and forgiveness has changed me and changed many of us in this room. And all that to say is that this holiday season, let's, let's not forget that when it comes to, to Jesus and the, you know, the full, full meaning of Christmas, these trees over here are great, but as true followers of Christ, you can't have these over here without that one over there. There are two trees of Christmas. Recognize it, remember it, and celebrate it with joy. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we're thankful for what you have done for us. You have given us your Son, Emmanuel, God with us. Religion is man searching for you, God, but... (laughs) You have come searching for us, which makes Christianity so very different from all other truth claims. We recognize that that Jesus entered history. He lived 
a life that we could never live. He died a death that we deserved to die in order that we might be forgiven, that by your grace we would have life everlasting, the greatest gift we could ever receive. And so we're thankful for him. And I pray that, that this Christmas we would remember, when we look at the tree, we remember there are two trees of Christmas, the cultural ones that we decorate in light, but then the true tree, that of the cross, without which the other trees are unnecessary. Thank you that we have Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And it's in his name we pray, amen. I want to thank you all for, uh, for being with us this morning. And, and if you're here and there's some things in your life you're excited about Christmas, but maybe there's some relational challenges you're facing or family issues and it's kind of putting a damper on things and you're struggling, because sometimes the holidays are hard for people. A following service, some of our prayer team folks will be down front. They're willing to talk with you and pray with you if you need it, so they're here for you, okay? Uh, I encourage you to come back next Sunday as we talk more about Christmas and its true meaning. And uh, bring some friends with you. Keep in mind, Christmas Eve, uh, number one day of the year when people don't normally go to church are willing to go. Invite someone to come and bring them with you. It's going to be a great evening, okay? It's going to be here before we know it. So uh, thanks for all that you do, for your commitment. And I'm excited to see what God's going to do in and through you, His church. Now let me pray for you. Now, Lord, we go from this place as your people, the church, and we go with a great sense of joy, um, not just artificial, not just joy that we're trying to muster up on our own in our own human efforts, but joy that, that truly comes from the deepest part of our hearts, our souls, our minds, joy in the knowledge of your grace found in Jesus, that it is not about what we can do for you, but what you have done for us in Christ. And so we celebrate that today. May we as your church make a difference in this world, in the lives of men, women, students, and children, bringing this good news of grace found in Jesus to them. And so may your hand of grace and peace, true grace, true peace and love be on your church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.